Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. <laughs> we decided to try it again. Good morning, and welcome to Black Freethinkers. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And so we appreciate you all for listening in, for being patient with us. Um, You know, I had to take some time off because just tired, had a lot of stuff coming at me. But we're back, we're back, and hopefully today I won't be talking in tongues again. So I'm looking forward to today's show. we did a show last Tuesday, for those who may not know or didn't see um, the archive hit or the archive listing, and we talked about what was happening up in Baltimore, and it's not just in Baltimore, it's happening across the country. If you go to hashtag Black Spring, again, hashtag Black Spring on Twitter as well as on Facebook, but more so Twitter you'll see what's happening, and there are protests happening all across the country. And if you go to the, you know, the website or just look up hashtag, you know, Black Spring, you'll see um, about different protests that are happening in your city or sitting nearby you. And so, you know, for those that are interested in being active out here doing a protest, you have that information. What I would do is, you know, for those that can't go out, if you can give some information, I mean, not give information, I apologize. If you can donate to the legal bail fund, that would be great. I'll post it on my wall again a little bit later on um, today after the show. But, yeah, they definitely need um, for us to donate money towards those funds because they have a couple of funds out there. They have another fund for black trans people that are being, you know, arrested during these protests as well. It's just it's, it's some of the things that I've seen. I just I'm looking at these protesters, and, you know, like I said, I never thought I'd see this. And so I'm so proud of these young people. They're out here, and they're saying no, and they're not being fooled by the propaganda. They're not being intimidated into silence, none of that. So that is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Good morning, Raina. Good morning. So, yeah, I just talked a little bit about people donating, and I'll post that after the show so that you can give money to the jail legal fund. As a matter of fact, um, there were some students, and I'm not sure which college it was, but they were law students, and their professors basically extended their extended the time before they have to take their finals if they were out there with the protesters and helping to get the protesters out of jail. That's because, actually several you know, law schools in the area, actually. 
Um, I know UDC did it, and um, I, I think it, I think University of Baltimore um, yeah. has done it too. But I, from what I understand, it's it's more than one university in the area. Excellent, excellent. So they're getting practical, you know, um, experience as opposed to just theory, which is what most you know, students get, they're getting actual practical experience and they're out there and they're helping people. And it was a story that I posted yesterday. Well, I didn't post the story. I apologize. I read this on somebody's status update and basically, you know, they had received a call from somebody in Baltimore, you know, and I found this story extremely inspirational. But anyway, they got a call from a friend of theirs in Baltimore, and they were talking about how they had, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand people out there protesting. Approximately seventy percent were white, you know, out there protesting, and they were going through the neighborhoods. And then they went through one neighborhood that most, you know, white people didn't go over into that area. But they went marching through that neighborhood, and the people in the neighborhood actually came out of their homes and was cheering with them, and I guess it turned into a street party. I'm not quite sure how that went, but that actually, I found that extremely inspirational, you know, because, you know, some of the residents, I guess they, you know, expressed that they didn't believe that anyone cared about them, and I guess when they saw that that big crowd coming down their way, and the majority of them were not people of color, I'm sure that was a surprise. I mean, it would have surprised me. What about you, Raina? I mean, I mean, it's it is and it isn't. I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of white people at at the protests in in Ferguson and you know in New York and elsewhere. So, um, I think right. that in general, there you know, I mean, people are just tired of hearing about you know how about the corruption that's going on. Right. You know, and I think that also because um, a lot of white people have, you know, white kids in our generation, well, in my generation, have, um, you know, have experienced um, or, or, or have have learned that this whole like American dream thing is is garbage, and have had to deal with, you know, um, you know, the fact that, you know, jobs are not as plentiful and all these sorts of things that. Some of them are, are 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 understanding that if it's like that for them, that it must be worse, you know, for people of color. And I think some of them are just, you know, they're just tired of seeing, you know, turning on the news and just seeing these senseless murders or these senseless mm-hmm. deaths of, of people of color at the hands of the police, you know? Exactly. It's just, exactly. It's just ridiculous, you know? It really is because, you know, every day, you know, in our news feed, whether it's, you know, my Twitter feed or the Facebook feed or, you know, even certain newspapers that I read, and, you know, there's a report of someone of color being abused, killed, or what have you by someone in law enforcement, you know, or even if it's someone not in law enforcement, like that incident down in Florida, and the the white man just felt that those young black men should have listened to him and turned their radio down because he was offended. You know, fortunately, in that case, he went to jail. So, but, you know, that's not anything new. 
you know, it kind of relates to the history of what we're talking about, about the N-word, because especially in the South, um, white people were able just to walk up to black people and just start beating them in the street. And it was nothing that they could do. And that's when you saw, you know, more people of color moving up north, even though the the great migration had already started because there were more jobs up north that would give people of color the opportunity to apply and actually have the jobs. But, you know, they were able to just take all their frustrations out on people of color. So, um, Raina, let's talk a little bit about the use of the word coon and thug. Because I just think it's important that, you know, we kind of expound on that. Because what's interesting is there was a councilman um, during an interview, and I believe it was Fox News or CNN. It was, you know, between CNN and Fox News, it's kind of interchangeable there <laughs> as of late. But um, they were talking to a black councilman, and the woman kept, you know, saying that, you know, the protesters were thugs and criminals and. You know, unfortunately, those are some of the same words that came out of the mouth of our President Barack Obama. And what was interesting about that situation is that that councilman, you know, just challenged him. And he said, well, you may as well just call them nigger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just find it interesting because you have all of these new names, you know, that people use to basically say, you know, the N-word. So, you know, with the use of the word thug and and criminal, and, you know, again, criminal criminalizing black people, especially young black men. But, you know, I have to make sure and people understand black women and girls are being abused and incarcerated at the same rate as black men. But unfortunately, you know, what has happened with this Black Lives Movement is it's basically is being co-opted and usurped, and you know the black male is now you know is taking the central thing, and that's why you'll see us posting stories about Black Women Matter and you know um, Black Women and Girls, and we'll talk about some of the you know young women that have been murdered and killed, and you know there's been a couple of more situations, you know trans women. You know, they're part of that as well. And that's something that we need to un- understand and, you know, not have to sit here and argue with people about gender. But that's a whole different story. I saw a whole thread on that, and I was just sitting there absolutely amazed that there are some people out there that could be that ignorant. I mean, there's no way I can sweeten that up. But, you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, the word coon? And when I see people saying coon, I see it more so from people of color. And what I want people to understand is that when it comes to white supremacy, you know, that's not just limited to white people. Okay, so we need for you to understand that. But, you know, Raina, you know, I've heard people call black people, you know, coon. I've heard, I've seen some white people saying some you know, extremely offensive things. And I'm sure if they thought they could get away with saying cone, that they would. But I've seen, you know, references to darky. And so we got thug being coming down or, or, you know, 
they'll call them criminals in some cases. Oh, they're they're drug dealers. Don't know who the person is, but just automatically claiming that, you know, they were arrested or, you know, just by looking at them that, you know, they are all these horrible things. What are your thoughts on that, Raina? Uh, I mean, I think that's pretty sure that anybody who knows, you knows anything about me could pretty much tell you what my thoughts are on this. I mean, <laughs> the word is offensive. It's, it's unnecessary. You know, I don't like it. Um, there's nothing positive about it. And, I mean, it's a racialized term. You know what I mean? That um, that has, you know, a really, really horrible history associated with it. You know? So, I don't know. Um, I don't know why people would use it except to dehumanize people. Um, I just, no. Mm-mm. There you go. So, I mean, when we see other people of color using words like cool, thug, darky, is it our responsibility to challenge them and educate them? I mean, I think, I mean, I think you pretty much have to pick and choose your battles. Sometimes it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it sometimes. You know, and so I guess the question for that is, you know, if it's, if we feel that sometimes that battle isn't worth fighting um, and we want white people to challenge, you know, racism, you know, do they get to say the same thing? Sometimes it's just not worth the battle. No, I mean... I mean, it is. I mean, look, it is what it is. People are going to do what they want to do. I can't. I can't force anyone to do what they're going to do. So, I mean, the point for me is, is that as a black person, I, you know, it's just exhausting just to be black. Sometimes I don't always feel like giving a lesson on history every time I encounter somebody. So that's just how I feel about the situation. So. There you go. So yeah, it's just interesting because you know we set out. And there are times when we challenge things and we'll educate the person on it. And we post a lot of different articles. You know, I know I've posted some articles um, in relation to the N-word. And, you know, it's just it's interesting because I'm starting to see the word coon and darky pop up a lot more. And I find it disturbing. But who wants to sit down and have a two-hour argument on a thread on Facebook with someone or have a Twitter war? That's just, you know, an exercise of utility. So that's why most of the time I just post links, and I don't really give my opinion on anything. I just post it, and I encourage people to read them, and hopefully they'll take away something positive or get a better understanding as to why certain words and and certain things, you know, are offensive to others, unless they're just trying to be offensive. And if that's the case, then it doesn't matter what we say. They're going to continue using that, those words and so what have you. Anyway, so we are talking about the N-word, and I'm referencing um, to the book Nigger by Randall Kennedy. Again, the name of the book is Nigger, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word, and the author is Randall Kennedy. And so what was interesting, you know, that I saw in this book, it was talking about Jim Crow etiquette. And I was just like, wow, you know, it it was true. They have 
etiquette. You know, you were supposed to abide by the Jim Crow etiquette. And to be honest with you, some of this is still, um, you know, in place today. And I'll give you, you know, some ideas as to what Jim Crow etiquette was, you know. Um, Basically, you know, reckless eyeballing was the offense of a black man who dared to look oh, wait, at a that white. that sounds like Freddie Gray. Yeah, yes. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's still in place today. Reckless eyeballing. You know, but, you know, he was recklessly eyeballing police officers as he was walking down the street minding his own business. You know, and so, yeah. Isn't that interesting, Raina? Mm-hmm. How stuff is etiquette is still in place today. I mean, I didn't, dis- I, I didn't, you know, I, I always thought that was true, but I'm just laughing because that specifically stands out as being relevant yeah. to what happened to Freddie Gray. So. Exactly, exactly. So, again, I'll read it again. Reckless eyeballing was the offense of a black man who dared look at a white woman. And so you can just scratch well, the woman yeah, I mean, Yeah, the eyeballing. I mean, I mean, he wasn't eyeballing a white woman, but in this case... He looked at a white person in a way they didn't approve. Exactly. So that's why I, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's why I said scratch out woman and just put person there. And mm-hmm. the penalty for that particular offense, physical abuse, jail, or death. How about that? It was interesting mm-hmm. in the Freddie Gray situation is three of the officers are people of color and three of the officers are white. And they had lower bail and, and and could possibly receive, you know, if they're if they're indicted and you know charged, you know, well they've already been charged, but if they're you know indicted, basically their jail terms will be less than the young man that smashed the police car window. His bail was five hundred thousand dollars. That was more than what the officers had to pay to get bailed out of jail. He faces the possible, you know, life sentence Great. for smashing a car window, and this is why we you hear us and going turned himself off. in. Yeah, and he turned himself exactly. in additionally. So it's like, you know, you would think that there, that you know, that perhaps there would have been some leniency in the charges that they chose to, you know, to use against him, just based on the fact that he turned himself in, but. You know, there was no such luck. And um, I think um, Elon James White and some of the um, the folks at TWIB, they were talking about another young gentleman who was picked up by police, and he happened to be Muslim. And um, they were saying that um, the next time that he, the police were telling him the next time that he's arrested for protesting, that they're going to charge him with potentially with terrorism. Yep. Exactly. That's horrible. And, you know, mm-hmm. some of you all that aren't familiar with it, they have charged some protesters as terrorists and, and, and well, low-level domestic terrorism. And the young woman, um, I believe she was in California, in the Oakland area, they had charged her with lynching. They dropped those charges. But, you know, I just want you guys to pay attention. We are now having people who are out here peacefully and legally protesting, being charged with, you know, terrorism and lynching. And 
And but I was also saying that just to say point out also that the cops are actually using people's religious identification against right. them when they're when they're when they're simply engaging in 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 justified protest. You know what I mean? Like this is right. not somebody who was planning a terrorist, you know, um, bombing or something. This is somebody right. who wants who wants to um, to help win the fight for freedom. Exactly. Exactly. And they have a right to express themselves. Mm -hmm. Period. Exactly. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I'm just looking at this. And here's another one, Bumptious Contact. So Bumptious Contact was refusing to make way for white people on a sidewalk or common thoroughfare. And the penalty for that was physical abuse or verbal abuse, sometimes jail. So if you're walking down the street, down the sidewalk, you and a few friends of yours, and a white person, be it young or old, male or female, was walking, you had to make way, which means move to the side. In most cases, you had to step off into the street mm-hmm. and allow the white person to have, you know, all of that space to walk by. And these are some of the things that, you know, people of color were dealing with, you know, and, you know, we've talked about, you know, um, a lot of different things like how there were different cities in America that you had to be out of there by the time the sunset. And so they call that the sunset rule. And it was in place in white communities where it was said that black people had to be out of the neighborhood by sunset or face physical, physical violence or arrest. And I know we had a bunch of those cities here in Chicago, namely Cicero and Berwyn and, you know, a number of, you know, the suburbs over here, Bridgeport. Oh, I think, you know, they have some people, some black people over in Bridgeport. But, you know, from what I could see, they usually live on the outskirts. So this is happening all across the country. And, you know, I'm pretty sure there's still some Places like that. Remember when Oprah went to Forsyth, Georgia? Yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think they let a few black people move in, but that's how, you know, it was crazy. I mean, even in Illinois, there was a little town called Pekin, P-E-K-I-N, Illinois, and they did not allow blacks into that area. And so what happened was Pekin won a bid for a prison. And so basically you start having black people move into the area, which enraged some of the whites, but it was nothing that they could do because with a prison, that brings jobs, that brings opportunity. In some cases, there are some people who had relatives that were part of the penal system, and they moved to be closer to that relative, you know, and to be there so that they could engage them. So, I mean, it's just a number of different reasons. But, you know, you still have towns like that all over the country. You know, back in the day when I used to take long trips and drive, you know, by myself long distances, one of the things that I would do is I would make a little plan, you know, a triptych. You know, you used to be able to get those triptychs from um, AAA Motors, but I knew how to do them. And so... I would look up the information about certain towns and cities, and there were certain ones I knew not to stop in. 
And so, you know, it's, it's just amazing that we still have all of this in place. Um, you know, it says here in Key West, Florida, it was the duty of the provost marshal to enforce the curfew. And when the bell rang at sunset, the white townspeople would sing after them, Run, nigger, run. Philor will get you. Wish I was in Philor's place. I'd give them niggers a long race. I had never heard of such a thing. You know, I've learned so much, you know, about this particular topic and where it came from. And basically, you know, if you're in a store or if you're, you know, you were anywhere, if you were in line, you were a person of color in line, and a two-year-old white person walked up trying to pay for a piece of candy, the, the clerk at the store was instructed to basically service the young white person, the two-year-old white kid, before they serviced the black person. And that's how it was, you know, and it still is in some places. Because I, anyway, so, you know, I can give you all some personal examples of a lot of this, what I've had to deal with. I've had that situation. And then when I would make a fuss about me being there first, they were like, oh, I didn't see you. Have you ever had that happen, Raina? They claim they didn't see you there, and they're trying to weed on all the white people. No, they don't. No, they don't get to do that with me. I'd be like, no, well, you see me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I fuss, and they would be like, and then a white person would be like, yes, she was here first. You know, but it's just the audacity of it, of the situation. And so... It's just crazy, you know, um, like now when we go out and we go shopping for clothes and shoes and all of that, we can now try it on at the store to see if it fits right, if we really like it. Well, back then with Jim Crow etiquette, black people did not have the opportunity to try on the clothing. They had to buy it and they couldn't even return it if it was if it didn't fit correctly. It couldn't be returned. Mm-hmm. And so even with traffic, you know, it's just, you know, all of this is interesting. You're at a four-way stop, and white people pull up. You have to allow those white people to go. You just have to sit there and let them all go through the intersection and wait. And so, and if you didn't do it, you would be fined or harassed. And, you know, if there was a collision and it was between a white person and a black person, the only person that would go to jail was the black person, even if it wasn't their fault. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've had to do uh, deal with a lot of things. You know, oh, and here you go, they had a statute. And, uh, yes, yeah, statute, not a statute, but a statute of the good Negro. You know, what's a good Negro to you, right now? Just better tell me what a good Negro is, according to their definition, please. <laughs> so the statue of the good Negro basically was, you know, the black person with their hat in their hands and, you know, averting their eyes to the ground. So you have to look toward the ground and, you know, as a reminder of, you know, proper subservience of white mm-hmm. supremacy. Mm-hmm. Ain't that something? Sounds about right. Yeah. And, you know, some of that 
still true to this day. I remember having a conversation with my mother because, you know, we, our family moved to, you know, basically the corn and wheat fields. And it was only 2% black in that town then. They're up to a whopping 8 9% now. And when my uncles and my grandmother and all of them, when they moved there, one of the things that my grandmother had taught my uncles about in that area is basically not to look white people in their eyes, to look down and all of that. And my mom and my aunts broke them of that and told them they didn't have to do that. But because of my grandmother's experience, you know, negative experiences in the South, this is what she remembered. And unfortunately, in that town, you know, or the towns, because there's several of them there, you know, um, we were dealing with racism. We were dealing with a lot of issues. And, you know, if you go and you look at the stats, even for that town, you know, people of color are being disproportionately incarcerated and, you know, receiving harsher sentences. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's amazing, you know, but a lot of this, you know, still goes on. And, you know, even with the Jim Crow laws, you know, many of them said nothing about race, but it was understood that, you know, this was for black people. You know, it was like an unspoken agreement between, you know, police or unspoken, you know, understanding or agreement between those in power and people of color. And so, I mean, a lot of that even extends to this day. And it's not just, you know, white people enforcing that. You have some black people who feel like, you know, there are just some unspoken rules you don't do A, B, C, D, and E. And then when you challenge that, then they try to penalize and punish you. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, it talks about with Jim Crow etiquette how having dark skin was enough to, you know, have them not hire you and, you know, could lead you to being punished for not having a job and being called a vagrant. I remember with some of the laws, you know, over the past 10, 20 years, if you do not have some type of state ID stating who you are, you can be charged with vagrancy. You know, did they have the same type of laws up there in Baltimore, Raina? Um, I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And, so uh, and the MVAs and things like that are not, like, always accessible to everybody. You have to kind of go out of your way to get to them. and It can be a thing, you know, and going there is like an all-day thing. So a lot of people don't have their IDs, you know, but they just, I guess they just avoid the cops at all costs because what else can you right. do? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we see what's happening with the school-to-prison pipelining. That's still a part of Jim Crow, you guys. And this is why you hear us talking about it, because, you know, Jim Crow, you know, uh, is still a part of our society. And, you know, when I hear people like um, the Doug Dynasty guy, Phil, I think his last name is Ferguson. 
ironically. And when he's talking about how things were better before the civil rights movement and that blacks were happier. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, if we walked around looking, you know, all swollen or crestfallen or what have you, we would be penalized for that. And you would have, you know, white people or particularly white men say, you know, what's wrong with you? You better be happy. You know, you should show some joy. And, you know, black people would have to get up and, you know, basically entertain and put on a show. And so it's, it's just... It's horrible, absolutely horrible. And, I mean, you all can go and look a lot of this stuff up, and that's what we want you to do. We want you to go and start researching, you know, these topics because, you know, black and whites were not supposed to eat together and because that would show, you know, commonality, you know, and blacks were not supposed to be in common with whites. And, you know, if they happened to eat together, the whites would be served first. And they will put some type of partition between them. And this is something that our parents and our grandparents, and in some cases, great-grandparents, had to deal with. You know, with me, my grandmother had to deal with that. But my great-grandmother was a slave. And she died when my grandmother was, you know, a young girl. And, you know, my grandmother was raised by her sisters. So... You know, it, it's just it's just wild when you start looking at this history and you start thinking about what, you know, some of your relatives had to go through. And even to this day, some of the things, you know, that I had to deal with. And, you know, one of the things that used to hurt me when I would deal with racism or what have you was I would know that it was wrong you know, how I was being treated or the situation, but I didn't have the words to articulate it because we didn't have the Internet back then. You know, we had books, we would read the books, but it's, things are a little bit different now, but I didn't have the words to articulate it. So when I couldn't articulate it, I would just get upset and cry and in many cases just walk away because there was nothing I could really say or do about it. and But now we have the words. We know how to fight back. You know, in some cases it takes money to be able to fight back. But, you know, those out there that may be dealing with some of this, just stay encouraged, you know, keep a careful eye out. And I am just really hoping that with the protests that we're seeing across the country, that things change. We're going to have to force these things to change. And we have white allies standing with us, which is wonderful, it's magnificent. I'm happy, you know, because unfortunately, you know, in this country with many people, if a black person talks about our pain and talks about what we've gone through and have articulated it, and there have been many you know, black men and women over the years that have talked about these issues. Unfortunately, it seems as though, especially white people, you know, but many people, but especially white people, will only listen to these grievances when it comes out of the mouth of a white person. And that's why now, you know, you see different people 
that are upset with people like, you know, Tim Wise and others that are talking about racism and white supremacy because they are able to establish a career off of this and get paid handsomely. Whereas the people of color that have been saying that for decades and writing books, you know, they're still, in many cases, impoverished. And so it's just interesting. I mean, did you have something to add to that, Raina? No. You say no. So, I mean, so basically, I mean, is that accurate? Yeah, of course it's accurate. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Just, you know, um, it's interesting because I know one of the things that you and I have talked about are with some of these television shows, how we rarely see, you know, a black couple, a black woman and a black man, um, or, you know, it can be a same-sex couple, you know, how we rarely see them in a true romance story. And what's interesting is with some of the Jim Crow etiquette, blacks were not supposed to show affection towards one another in public, and especially kissing because it offended white people. Mm-hmm. And so next... Hmm? I just said right. Yeah, and so that's, that makes me wonder... You know, if that's one of the reasons why we rarely, rarely see, you know, stories whereas you have a black couple on a television show being affectionate with one another. And, I mean, there are some exceptions, but there you go. So, huh, it's interesting. And, like I said, um, yeah, go out and do some research. You all... Just go and take a look. Go take a look and see what was happening, you know, because um, blacks were, you know, we were forced to follow certain rules when conversing with white people. And here I'll give you some examples. It said, never assert or even intimate that a white person is lying. Never impute dishonorable intentions to a white person. Never suggest that a white person is from an inferior class Never lay claim to or overly demonstrate superior knowledge or intelligence. Never curse a white person. Never laugh derisively at a white person. And never comment upon the appearance of a white female. So, it's it's interesting because, you know, just, you know, look it up. Because, you know, when I was reading this, I was just absolutely outdone. And, you know, the Jim Crow system was, you know, it was evil. It's still evil. It's still being enforced. They just don't call it Jim Crow anymore. And for those of you that aren't aware, you know, Jim Crow was not a real person. You know, um, it came from my own character in a minstrel show. Yes, a character in a minstrel show, and um, it was a black act. I'm sorry, a white actor by the name of Thomas Rice, and he would come out in blackface. And it started in 1832, and you know, basically, it was used to satirize Andrew Jackson's populist policies. And so, it's just it's horrible. You know, it says by 1838. 
you know, there were laws, you know, racial segregation, and they became known as Jim Crow laws, you know. And while the character wasn't real, the laws were very real. And they scared a lot of people, rightfully so, you know. And it was just, wow. You know, interracial couples were, you know, illegal because basically they felt that it would, you know, that those relationships would create mongrel children. And you still see a lot of that belief today is just as crazy. And, you know, blacks were not even, you know, even think about being, you know, socially equal or equal to whites in any way whatsoever. And it's just as crazy. It's crazy. Go go over and look this stuff up, guys. You know, if you, I don't know. You know, when I went back and I was reading, you know, a lot of the information about this, it actually upset me quite a bit. You know, and, you know, even to this day when you hear some white people referring to black men or, or young men, you'll hear them, you know, call them boy or call them uncle or old man, you know, or call them by their first names. But, you know, we were expected to call the white people Miss whatever or Mr. whatever. And so you just, I can't even think about it. And I know, Rain, I know your your grandparents, you know, had a different type of, upbringing, but did they, did, did, have they ever talked about having experienced any of this? Experienced racism? I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, my grandmother, my grandmother grew up, I mean, my grandmother grew up in Montana. I mean, she was, I mean, there wasn't really like an opportunity for like segregation in that community because her family was like basically the only black, black people in town. You know what I mean? So they yeah. couldn't really they couldn't really actively segregate them. But I mean, you know, my grand my grandmother, you know, she, you know, it wasn't as difficult for her in Montana in terms of like um, having to sit at the back of the bus. But certainly, I mean, she dealt with racism. There were certain things she couldn't do. She couldn't go go to certain parties, or you know, she had friends, you know, but it was only up until a certain point. You know what I mean? That she could do certain things. Um, you know, my grandfather came from Baltimore City, so he knew um, to a certain degree, um, you know, the racism in Baltimore being was a little bit different. I mean, we didn't have Jim Crow exactly. Um, but, you know, a lot of it was, you know, based on, you know, where you, one, what neighborhood you lived in, you know what I mean? And just, you know, what kind of jobs your family could, could get. I mean, you pretty much were confined more or less to your side of town, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was different. I mean, then when he moved to Montana, it was a little bit different. I mean, he had a bit more freedom because there just weren't that many black people. They just couldn't actively, you know, you know, repress them all. You know, it just, it just wasn't worth It would be a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
And so, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, we want you guys to sit at the back of the bus, all three of you. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? I mean, my grandmother, my, I mean, Montana was so different. I mean, my grandmother, my grandmother said that she remembers, like, every year, once a year, there was, like, um, a picnic. And, like, all right. the black people from across the state of Montana would come. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, it was it was probably a fair number of people, like, you know, for, for a space, you know, for an event. You know what I mean? But all these people were very spread out. I mean, they were not, you know, my grandmother lived in Butte, where her family was pretty much the only black family. And then there was mm-hmm. Missoula. And then there was, like, all of these other towns, you know, where there were, you know, little pockets of black people. And together, you know, there might have been, you know, 50, 60 of them or more. You know, I don't think I, I don't think my grandmother ever gave me an estimate of how many people she saw at one point. She just remembers that that was the only time that she really saw a whole lot of black people in one place that weren't related to her or weren't all related to her. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, interesting because I know my mom told me a little bit about when they were growing up and... And, oh, about I'm sorry. I, and that's just one side of my family, too, because my, my other grandparents died before I was able to really get these sorts of stories from them. So Right. Yeah. Right. So. so, yeah, you know, that's, that's why I encourage some of the younger people, go and talk to your grandparents, you, you know, your parents, great-grandparents and great-grandparents to find out what they had to deal with and, you know, just think about, you know, what they had to do, everything that they had to sacrifice so that we could, you know, have a better life. And what's interesting is in some cases we do have, you know, more privileges or a better advantage than they had then, but, you know, Jim Crow laws are still on the books. Because, I mean, think about it. (laughs) You know, some of you in, in your workplace or even in general conversations, you know, if in, in some cases when you're having a conversation with a white person, you're someone of color and you're having a conversation with a white person, if you, they, they want you to be agreeable and non-challenging. And if you're disagreeable and you're challenging, then it's a really good chance they're not going to like you. You know, oh, you just described what it's like. Like that's you describe what it's like to be a woman too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. At that same, at exactly. that same time, and then to be a black woman and have to deal with that—that's you know—that's you know—that's a yeah. whole another ball game. Exactly, exactly. And we see that now. And I just sit back and I laugh because we'll have people from different you know groups. Because, you know, we believe in intersectionality. So it's just amazing how a lot of this stuff overlaps, right? And Mm -hmm. when you're, you know, when you disagree with certain people and you challenge their stance, they take great offense. And it's just interesting. I mean, Raina knows we're dealing with some of that even in this secular community. And it's just interesting because, you know, you have a lot of people who just want us to go along, to get along, and mm-hmm. not to upset the powers that be. And so it's just, it's horrible. 
it's horrible. And when you challenge things and, you know, you're disagreeable, you know, you're called, um, let me think of some of the words, um, obstinate, um, angry, you know, and there are a lot of different adjectives that I've heard, you know, describing me because, you know, I challenge certain things and I'm not agreeable. You know, um, in every community you have that. So it's not just a white-black thing. It's a black-black thing. It's a, you know, male-female thing. It's just, you know, you have different communities and different situations. And like Raina said, you know, being, you know, women, we get a lot of that from men. Oh, if you, you know, if you weren't so obstinate and challenge everything, you know, you'd be married by now. You know, that's crazy shit that we hear. And so... You know, it's just interesting. You know, go back and and look at it. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it was wild. It was wild. So, what do you what have you to say about that, Raina? Um, I don't really have anything to say on that project on that right now. Sorry. Say that again. I said I don't have anything to say about that. Sorry. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so you know, on um, if you look at the show marquee or what have you, you'll see I put a sign on there. It's a picture of a sign, and it was like you know, no Negroes, no Jews, and no dogs. And, you know, they had those signs posted everywhere. I mean, if they didn't have no Jews on it, it would say no Negroes and no dogs allowed. And, you know, even to this day, you'll hear them try to, you'll hear certain people attempt to, you know, compare people of color with animals. You know, you know, they're just out here in the street acting like animals. And you're hearing a lot of that you know, from even people now talking about, you know, what's happening across the country. And then they want to talk about personal responsibility. And so, again, these are buzzwords from, you know, even back then. So, yeah, you know, guys, look it up. Look it up because it's just amazing. And it's crazy, you know, and you see some of this, even, you know, amongst, you know, white people amongst each other, this, and, you know, in that case, it's a class issue in most cases. You know, sometimes it is, you know, a racial issue because you have these people out here and, you know, a part of what makes white supremacy so strong is you have people that are adopted into the white social circle. You know, you have ethnic whites out here. At one point in time, you know, Irish people were considered white niggers, and you had Dutch people, and you had Italian people, especially if they were from South Italy. You know, if they were from the southern, you know, part of Italy, they were darker. And so, you know, it's just been interesting as time has gone on how this hierarchy has been established. And what a lot of people don't seem to realize is that with white supremacy, there is a hierarchy. And in order for it to be effective, they have to continue adopting 
you know, other ethnicities into that circle for them to be able to continue to perpetuate anti-blackness. And so I'm just happy to see that you have a lot of, you know, Asian people, you have a lot of Latin people fighting back at that. And, you know, yesterday I posted an article and was using the hashtag on Twitter, black and brown power, because there are Latino groups all over the country but in this particular case, I was pointing out a Latino group in Baltimore that was standing with the protesters in solidarity. And we're starting to see more and more of that across the country. I know we've seen some Asians standing in solidarity, you know, with us. And because, you know, they're called other names. And, you know, they're being penalized and, you know, persecuted as well. And, Unless they're done with the blacks and Latinos, you know, they're basically going to start, you know, turning on poor whites. And I think there are some white people out here who get that and they understand how history works. And so, you know, we have a lot of people out here protesting with us, supporting us in, in, in what's happening. And I'm just glad to see it, you know, and... We need more people out here. We need more people standing up. And even if you can't physically be a part of the protest, even if you do not have the means to donate to anything, you know, just send a kind word, you know, give them some encouragement, something, you know, because we all can play a part in this. So, you know, again, this is part of the history, and I know I've deviated away from the N-word, but not really because it's not just, about the N-word, it's about the actions as well. And, you know, it's very important for people to understand that. I mean, you know, go back and look at what happened to Emmett Till. You know, and when, you know, they were first getting ready to bury him, um, the mom made very specific, you know, um, requests and what they tried to do, what, what they did is they covered him up in lime, limestone. And his mom found out about it and made them take it out. And that's when they built, you know, uh, basically a glass casket. I mean, it was a regular glass casket, but it was enclosed in glass. And basically he's been able to be preserved. His mother wanted people to see what they had done to her child. And that was very smart on her end, you know. So, you know, go and look up the information about Emmett Till. And, you know, I don't know how they did it. I mean, I couldn't have lived through that. I mean, we're living through it with it now, but just the extreme. I mean, do you think that you would have been able to deal with that, Raina? Do you think you would, they would have had you hanging from a tree somewhere? <laughs> they had me hanging from a tree somewhere. <laughs> they had me hanging from a tree. I don't know. My, my mother and I were talking about uh, ten years of slave <laughs> when we were uh, watching it. We were saying, you know, based on our personalities, we might have we might have lasted ten minutes of slave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And <laughs> because. You know, I've had a white person say to me that if the whites in this country wanted to put blacks back in slavery, that they could. And, you know, what's interesting about that is 
if you go back and you look at what Ronald Reagan, the policies that he put in place, that's essentially pretty much what he did. So go and look that up. I'm not making it up. Fact check me. Fact check. I have no problem with that, you know, because, you know, the policies that Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton put in place, you know, have hurt a lot of people of color. And it's just interesting because when we talk about what, you know, the policies have been put in place, especially by Bill Clinton, you know, you have people that get upset because, you know, they want to call him the first black president. But he did a lot more than most other presidents to, to hurt the black community. And if you go and you look now, you'll see that he has reversed himself on a lot of those things which I find quite interesting. And, you know, I found it interesting that Hillary was saying we need answers to the Freddie Gray, you know, incident. And and it's like, it's just some of this is just hard to believe because it's like, are you saying this because you're a politician or are you saying this because you really believe that? And sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the two. So... It is. Not you know, hard. It's, she's saying it. She's saying it because she she sees what's going on on the TV and she's trying to politicize it for her own purposes. Now, I right. you know the only the only person I really want to vote for is the one person who's not running. So there yeah, you go. Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, mm-hmm. Elizabeth. Well, um, Bernie Sanders is in the race, and I'm watching yeah, him. Yeah, but, but very Bernie cool. Sanders is not Elizabeth Warren, and honestly, Bernie Sanders has no chance. But I think anything that Bernie Sanders can do to pull Hillary more left is is a plus. You know what I mean? Right. So Right. I'm glad exactly. that I'm glad that he's running if only to push her more to the left. But Right. You know. Going to bring a lot of, you know, honesty, hopefully, a lot of honesty to the debates. Because if he's participating mm-hmm. in debates, he's not gonna let them just slide by. He's going right. to openly challenge them and force them to, you know, really talk about the issues, which is important. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that they allow the Green Party candidates, you know, into the debates. I just think it's important that those debates are inclusive, you know. But then you have people from the LaRouche Party, and you know, I don't really want to hear no, too much. Them, no, keep them LaRoucheans out. Yeah, that's why I said I don't really want to hear too much from them. So it's interesting. So, yeah, you know, uh, just keep your eyes open. And so, you know, uh, you know, it's talking about the court system, you know, in this book. And it's talking about, hold on a second here. All right, thanks for that. And it's talking about, you know, jurisprudence. And it was talking about how it was divided into four categories in relation to black people, you know. And basically, you know, they had different ways in which they would categorize um, black cases and how to deal with black people legally. And so, you know, it says here the first of these compromises, cases, in which a party seeks relief after it is revealed that officials within the criminal system, jurors, lawyers, or judges, have referred to blacks as niggers. 
The second encompasses cases in which an individual who kills another seeks to have his culpability diminished on the grounds that he was provoked when the other party called him a nigger. The third type of case involves controversy surrounding targets of racial invective who sue for damages under tort law or anti-discrimination statutes. And the fourth category consists of a consists of situations in which a judge must decide whether or not to permit jurors to be told about the linguistic habits of witnesses or litigants. And what I found interesting about that fourth one mainly is we saw a live version of that with Mark Furman in the O.J. Simpson trial when Mark Furman was, you know, stating emphatically that he had never used the N-word and that the N-word was not in his vocabulary. And then those tapes popped up with him using the N-word. And it was just a whole thing, you know, it was just interesting. And, you know, he's now um, a commentator with Fox News. Is he still with Fox? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We say I don't follow his career. That sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, you know, just want you all to go out and and just look and pay attention. I also want you to go and look up um, a 1985 um, experiment, and it was social psychologist of Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski. I think I'm just saying that right. I will destroy your name. So anyway, they put together an experiment at, at at determining how listeners were affected by overhearing racial slurs directed at specific targets. And so they asked groups of white college students to judge debates between white and black contestants. And immediately after the debates, persons working in concert with the experimenters either derogatorily referred to the black contestant as niggers, criticized them in a non-racist manner, or made no comment at all. And so what they found was that the observers who overheard the insults, you know, they exhibited a marked tendency to lower their evaluation of the slurred black um, debaters. And, you know, it's it's just interesting because it says it suggests, you know, the researchers were suggesting that racial slurs can indeed cue prejudiced behavior in those who are exposed to such slurs. And so it's just, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. You know, and it says, you know, this, you know, has a bearing on parole board meetings, promotional, um, uh, promotion committee meetings, and jury deliberations in which racial slurred may be expressed by one member of the group, be overheard, and then affect the evaluations of the target by other members of the group. So what they concluded was the word nigger was not merely a symptom of prejudice, but a carrier of the disease. How about that? Yep. You know, mm-hmm. and I just find that, you know, you know, some of you all, you may not find this intriguing, but I do. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I find it intriguing for a number of reasons because it is still in place. You have people out here who are still trying to tell us that we live in a post-racial America and that, you know, America is colorblind and we know better 
We know better. And when people make these inappropriate comments, one of the things that I've seen, you know, white people say and do to cover for that other person, and they'll say, oh, well, they misspoke. So, you know, when you call me the N-word or whatever, you know, not just the N-word, but a number of other inflammatory words out there, you just misspoke. Funny how that works, huh, Raina? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I've seen the same thing with Dusty. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen people say that all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it was just poorly chosen words, you know, or you're misunderstanding. Then, you know, sometimes you get the people who want to come and challenge your comprehension, telling you that's not what it meant. This is what it meant. No, it meant this. This is what, and I mean, so you get that around, you know, it's not only with, you know, white people, but we get that from other people of color, especially the ones that, you know, are, you know, quote-unquote friends and defend some of these people with some of the comments that they make. And I just find it just reprehensible. You know, especially with some of the things that we have to deal with. And this is why you hear us making such a fuss about CPAC and about, you know, members of the atheist community going over and attempting to recruit members from CPAC. These people are unashamedly, you know, unabashedly proud to be whatever type of bigot that they are whether it's, you know, a sexist, a misogynist, you know, a racist, you know, a homophobe, transphobe, they make no apologies. And you're trying to recruit them over here. And I always thought that, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do in this community was to bridge those gaps and and with people, you know, with believers and, you know, have a dialogue and communicate but with some of these people you just can't communicate with. You know, their mind is set up the way it is, and that's just how that happens. So it's just it's amazing. So, I mean, what's your take on that, Rain? I mean, I know it floors you because we've talked about it, you know, on a number of different occasions, but is there any justification for this? I mean, I, all I've seen is that they try to say that they're not recruiting from CPAC or whatever, um, and that they're really just trying to encourage them to, you know, become more secular. And they think that they think the main issue with CPAC is that, or the Republican Party or the conservatives in this country, is that they are too religiously influenced, as though that's their only issue. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. And, exactly. Um, and so, you know, my thing is, is whether you want to call it recruiting or not, it looks a hell of a lot like recruiting. And, you know, my mother always told me if it walks like a duck and sounds like a duck and looks like a duck, it's a duck. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, so there's that part of it. But then there's just the, you know, the just the aspect. It, it just seems like either they're they're trying to be – Either they're obtuse, they're completely obtuse, or they're just, or they're deliberately lying. You know what I mean? Because I feel like you know what these people are about. 
you know, these are the same people who, you know, who have had, you know, people like Rand Paul stand in front of them and say that the civil rights, uh, the, um, what is it, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know what I mean, um, was a violation of the constitutional rights of private citizens, you know what I mean? Um, right. You know, who, who own businesses and things like that. I mean, you know, th- these are the kinds of things that um, the CPAC is known for, you know what I mean? So why one would want to go into their myth at all, I question. And and why not go to the you know if you're if you're if your issue is wanting to make the Republican Party or conservatives less religious, why go to that conference, the one place where you are really unlikely to have that happen? You know what I mean? Why not go to the Republican convention? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just the regular right. GOP convention. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I really exactly. question why you would go at all. You know what I mean? Because I really just don't think that. Um, I, well, for one, I just think Dave Silverman is just really completely abhorrent as a person. You know what I mean? And his whole style of engagement is just so um, combative in, in, in its way that it makes it impossible for people to want to hear what he's saying. And also what he says most of the time is completely stupid or fucked up or, you know, obvious. Like, it's not anything special. You know what I mean? Right. And, um, exactly. And so, like, I just don't really understand, like, what they re- what the real goal and intention is because it doesn't seem like those CPAC votes were really feeling them. Like, yeah, they, they took up the buttons and shit. You know what I mean? But people pick up all kinds of buttons and free shit. When they go to conferences, I pick up shit on tables at conferences that I don't necessarily like or want. It's just there and it's free. So why not? You know? Exactly. You know? I mean, people just do that. Like, it's not, it's not like, it's not that deep. Like, I would not go around acting like that was like some, some real coup, you know, that you had, that you ran out of buttons. So the fuck what? You ran out of buttons. You know what I mean? Exactly. Let's, exactly. wait, let's, let's, see, let's see what happens with CPAC next year, you know? Yeah, that's going to be interesting because you know they're going back. Oh, yeah, of course so. they're going back because, because, honestly, this is really about the political, the political aspirations of the people in these organizations and their, and their right. political um, beliefs. Their political beliefs are aligned with, with CPAC, and that's why they want exactly. to be there. And, you know, and rather than just be there as, as citizens, right? You know, why not get the tax write-off and go there and pretend that what we're really trying to do is trying to temper the religious, you know, the religious, uh, you know, constituency of the conservative party, you know, and trying to, you know, trying to make it more secular, you know? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's all, it's all a bunch of pretense. It's all a bunch of bullshit. You know, it's not, you know, they're not really making inroads here. This is, it's a bunch of crap. It's a bunch of crap. And the, and, and, even, and even when you think of that, and it's like, it's like, you know, these are people who are supposed to be educated, right? Like CPAC, you know, has ties to, you know, organizations that are anti-immigrants, that are, you know, yep. really white supremacists, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In their, um, you know, in their orientation, you know, um, there are articles um, all over the internet um, talking about, 
some of how some of the organizations that funded CPAC this year are tied to white supremacist organizations or people exactly. who started white supremacist organizations. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, we should probably, you know, be a little bit more careful who we try to, um, who we're reaching out to, especially if we say that we want more divert, greater diversity in this movement and all these sorts of things, which I don't really think they really care about, more or less. I think it's mainly, um, you know, when they do deal with diversity or when they do in, involve people of color, it's mainly um, for the purposes of appearances and has very little to do with actual leadership or direction or any of that. So that's just how there I feel about it. Right. Oh, uh, also, look, Kim, Kim, also, wigs. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but speaking of conferences, I forgot to announce ours, and I'll talk talk about it like the last 15 minutes of the show, guys. So just, you know, hang in there, and we'll be talking about it in about 30, 35 minutes, okay? So basically, yeah, so no, you're right. You know, and I had a big issue with them going out to CPAC, and we know the type of people that are part of CPAC, you know, and especially those tea partiers. And you go and look this stuff up, guys. We are not making it up, you know. Um, if you want to look something up, go on uh, Twitter and look up hashtag CPAC Atheist. But, you know, in addition, we just want you to do some research. It's not going to take a lot of research because this kind of just pops up in the Google, you know, feed. Um, look up CPAC and what they stand for, and the people that are a part of it. And I just, I'm not understanding this community, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I know myself why, you know, I'm starting to back away because it's like foolishness and fuckery, they like that. And there's a couple of people that are on that foolishness and fuckery you know, roller coaster that I'm just absolutely surprised by. I don't even know how to express myself, you know, in that. But anyway, getting back to the N-word, um, you know, basically, just go back and look up some of the history. Look up H. Rap Brown. And H. Rap Brown was, you know, he was one of the heads of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And these were the young people, college students, that were going to you know, the all-white cafeterias and sitting in the stools. They would have water thrown on them, food thrown on them, people blowing smoke in their face, spitting on them, and they were supposed to sit there with no reaction and not react to, you know, the uh, antagonism, right? And so basically what happened was in the late 60s, he was convicted, you know, of a firearms violation, And basically, after he was convicted, one of the lawyers stepped up with information suggesting that the judge who had presided over the the trial harbored a prejudice against Brown. And the judge said that he was going to get that nigger. Right? So at a post-convention, I'm sorry, a post-conviction hearing, you know, the new judge found the lawyer's statement to be credible, but decided you know, to affirm the conviction and sentence. And he ruled that notwithstanding the initial judge's unfortunate comment, the defendant had had a fair trial. And the Court of Appeals reversed it. You know, they vacated his sentence and they reversed the conviction. 
well, vacated his conviction and reversed the um, decision. But basically, you know, the judge had made those type of comments. And, you know, usually they didn't they didn't reverse that stuff. You know, H. Rap Brown, they probably would try to put him in jail for the rest of his life. And it has everything to do with, you know, people not falling in line with the status quo and reinforcing, you know, white supremacy. But, yeah, you know, that was just one of, you know, the situations in which, you know, it was reversed. And like I said, you know, this happened often. It didn't happen often at all, then or now. Just like, you know, what's happening now with these police officers not being indicted across the country. You know, and especially when they're not being indicted for, you know, in many cases, nothing, absolutely nothing happens to them. And the last time, you know, we had this happen in this magnitude, I mean, these acts have been happening over the years. You know, it's just a wonderful technology that we have now that we're able to get all of the video. But, you know, one video that kind of set everything aflame, if you will, was with Rodney King. And when they quitted the white officers, you know, that beat the tar out of Rodney King. And you're seeing, you know, that even more so now. So while there are some people that, you know, hate the technology for that reason, in many cases, it doesn't even matter if we have the, you know, the technology. With the case of Eric Garner, all of that was on tape. And the white cops still was let go. And mm. so, you know, what I find interesting about the situation is in Baltimore with the Freddie Gray, you know, situation there, the young man that took that video of what was happening with Freddie Gray, they did an interview with him, and this guy was, you know, he was crying. And he was like, you know, he he felt like he had finally made a difference in the world. And, you know, that's that's powerful. Powerful. You know, you have to go and read that article. It's on my wall. And, and you know, unfortunately, he was arrested. So I haven't had a chance to look up what happened to him. Do you know what happened with that young man right now? I mean, other than that, no. Okay, yeah, other than that, we have to look it up to see what happened to him, what his so-called charges were. But, you know, I want you all to go out because, I mean, this, what they're doing to us is wrong, you know, period. And it's not just black people, but you got Latinos, you have Asians, you have poor whites, you know, that are, you know, just mistreated, mistreated and basically being told that we're nothing and we don't matter. Mm-hmm. And we do. And this is why you have these movements happening, you know, across the country. And so, you know, you have a lot of things, you know. um, You have some of these judges and lawyers that are racially biased. You know, right here it talks about in 1994, guys, 1994, not 1894, not 1934, but 1994. You know, um, the California Supreme Court suspended a judge for repeatedly, you know, referring to niggers, you know, off the record in his chambers. You know, and he felt that he was immune from the disapproval of observers. You know, in 1998, 
Supreme Court in Michigan removed a judge who in tapes, you know, surreptitiously made by her husband was revealed as a person who constantly referred to blacks demeaningly as niggers. In 1999, a state court in New York removed J. Kevin Mulroy from a judgeship based on several incidents. You know, in one case, he had attempted to persuade a prosecutor to accept the plea bargain from four men indicted for murdering and robbing a 67-year-old, you know, African-American woman. The judge told the prosecutor that he could, he should not worry about the case since the victim had been some old nigger bitch. Oh. 1999, y'all. And he referred to the woman who lost her life as some old nigger bitch. And these are the people that are sitting on our courts, which is why it's important, you know, when we go out here and we vote, you know, some, you know, judicial, you know, uh, positions are appointed, but some they have to be elected in. So it's important that you all understand and understand, you know, their record. And so, (laughs) you know, it's, it's just, it's amazing, you know, because right there, you know, he devalued that woman's life. You know, it's it's disturbing and it's inappropriate, you know, and this is why we're telling you all to go out and look, you know, and another case here in 1911 in Mississippi, you know, the prosecutor basically told the jury, this bad nigger killed a good nigger. The dead nigger was a white man's nigger, and these bad niggers like to kill that kind. You know, the only way you can, you know, break up this kind of pistol-toting among the niggers is to have a necktie party. Mm. And, you know, you even have that today. You know, you know, Raina and I, we've talked about it. You know, we've talked about a number of things. But, you know, you have your good blacks and you have your bad blacks. And unfortunately, you know, the bad blacks are the ones that, you know, challenge the status quo. The bad blacks are the ones that will make their, you know, disagreements known, that, you know, will challenge the system and in in willing to walk away and do something different, where you have some people that just want you to fall in line. They want you to shut up and just do as you're told, don't question anything. And it's just amazing. You know, what say you, Raina? I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, bad blacks, you know, they just they just don't accept um, oppression very well. Right. You know, and, you know, there are a lot of, you know, examples. You know, basically here, a prosecutor in Texas in 1970 asked a witness if he could have gotten out of his car for three nigger men at night if they hadn't had guns. And so, you know, this this stuff, and I mean, even now, you see a lot of this happening. Um, And, you know, in 1995, Jerry L. Spivey, you know, he was an elected, elected district attorney from the 5th Prosecutorial District of North Carolina. And apparently he was at a bar, and he got drunk, and, you know, he saw he was watching his wife, and he said, look at that nigger hitting on my wife. And, you know, the the black man that was talking to his wife was Ray Jacobs. 
you know, a professional football player. He was on with the Denver Broncos. And basically, um, when his wife, when Spivy's wife tried to introduce him to, you know, the football player there, um, <laughs> the district attorney responded by saying, he looks like a nigger to me. And basically, you know, he was still, you know, agitating the situation and repeatedly, you know, calling, you know, Jacobs a nigger. And eventually the bartender kicked him out of the bar. But, you know, there were several attorneys that, you know, basically petitioned a judge to remove him from his post. And, you know, it happened. But, I mean, guys, these are recent activities. You know, for those who are trying to convince us that we don't have racism anymore, there's really nothing you can do to convince me of that. We live this. We live it. I mean, sometimes aren't we told that we're just whining and being too sensitive? Yeah. Absolutely. All the time, yeah. actually. Right. And we witness... All of these tragedies that um, white people may um, may experience, you know, going you know going all the way back into you know history, you know, talking about the Lusitania and the Titanic and stuff, and we're supposed to remember those things, but you know, we're supposed to forget slavery and the raising right. of, of the African continent and ongoing you know racial discrimination and Jim Crow segregation. All of these things, all of these things are to be forgotten. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and, you know, just to be fair, you know, about the situation, you know, we're, you know, we're also supposed to forget how they mistreated the Native Americans, how they mistreated, you know, um, Latinos, you know, particularly Mestizos, the ones from Mexico, you know, um, also Filipinos, the Filipinos when they came to this country, as well as some Asians that were brought to this country specifically to be slaves, you know, after the emancipation. And so, you know, it's a lot of that. And how Asians were, how many Asians were brought here after slavery as cheap domestic labor and mistreated. And then, of course, the concentration camps during World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, concentration camps during World War II, but also a lot of people don't realize, they don't know, that after um, Lincoln freed the slaves, there were some concentration camps that held black people because they didn't, you know, they didn't know what to do with them. I want you all to look Mm -hmm. up the Devil's Punch Bowl. Mm -hmm. Look up the Devil's Punch Bowl and look up Wild Peaches with it. So the Devil's Punch Bowl, Wild Peaches. And Mm -hmm. you'll see what I'm talking about. Um about how they held, you know, some blacks and basically, you know, they interned them. So, you know, they were held in concentration camps and they wouldn't let them out and people just started dying. You know, that's one part of history that they don't talk about. And, you know, I'll find that article and I'll post it on my wall a little bit later about the Devil's Punch Bowl. I've posted it a couple of times in the past, but Mm -hmm. I just basically need for you all to you know, look this up is to get a better understanding. But, yeah, you know, there are some people, you know, some of the laws, you know, that will say that the word nigger, you know, those are fighting words. And so, you know, you have the fighting words doctrine. 
So, you know, I want you to go out and look that up. In particular, specifically, there's a case called Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, and it's a 1942 case that basically established the fighting words doctrine. So, yeah, go back and look that up and basically, you know, <laughs> you know, see see what's happening there. It's, it's just it's amazing. Absolutely amazing what's happening out here. But yeah, do your research, everybody. Do your research, find out what's happening out here and you know how it, you know, pertains to your life. Because you are not immune from this. None of us are immune from this. And like I said, you know, right now the battle is on with, you know, black and brown people, but they're going to come after the poor white soon. So, you know, don't think that you're protected. You're not. You know, they will be coming after you next. And this is why we need to, you know, band together, which is why you've heard me saying over the past several years that we need to pick up the poor people's campaign again. You know, where, you know, Dr. King left off, you know, when he was assassinated. We need to go back and pick up the poor people's campaign because that was, it was an aggregated, you know, campaign. It was people of color and poor whites. You know, and this is why, you know, again, we talk about trying to facilitate, you know, um, an understanding and and to talk to one another and to work with one another as as, as, you know, basically, you know, we're not going to be able to achieve anything if we're divided. You, you know, what say you on that, Raina, about the Poor People's Campaign? Do you feel that we need to go up? And also, not only the Poor People's Campaign, we need to have another anti-lynching campaign as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Poor People's Campaign, I mean, I, I we've talked about it before, and I agree with you. I agree we need to you know, pick up aspects of that program and um, stand on it. You know, I think there's issues beyond, you know, um, some of the things that the Poor People can, Campaign was focused on um, dealing with. You know, we have to, you know, make sure that we keep it up to date and modern and we deal with, um, you know, modern issues like Internet, um, the Internet and net neutrality and all of that sort of stuff. And, um you know, making healthcare right, and you know, having um, you know, having that possibly added to the constitution, you know, that's something that I'd like to see. You know, um, there's just a lot of things that we need to work on. But you know, I also I also tell you all the time, I'm I'm sort of leery of, um, of all of these sort of like overarching, all inclusive you know, platforms, because I feel like, generally speaking, um, many groups are left out, you know, in favor of something that, quote-unquote, affects everyone. Right. You know? So, and that's, I think that people need to, I think people need to focus on the issue, on advocating for themselves um, right. as best they can, you know, with other with other people who are, um, you know, with other people, in contact with other people who shared sort of their intersectional perspective. Um and I think we can and I think we can all work together on certain other issues. You know, but I think that um focusing on just one agenda is um is a bad situation. You know? Right. So 
Exactly. Yeah, it definitely needs to be a scope of work with different, you know, addressing the different needs of the different groups. <clears throat> and so, you know, that it's just as important. And then also, you know, um, to expound on what Raina was saying, and that's true. Because we've seen that happen with, you know, the LGBTQ movement and, you know, a number of other movements in which, you know, it was all inclusive, even though many of these movements were started by people of color. And basically what they've done is they would go in and they would try to sanitize it, if you will, and basically make it more palatable to, you know, white audiences. And so it's just interesting because you're seeing the same thing across the board. We're seeing it in this community, and I find it absolutely hilarious. You know, but, you know, the part about it that makes makes it so evil is that when, you know, unfortunately, you know, this is what we've seen. When, you know, the white people in some of these movements achieve their goal, then they move on, and we get thrown under the bus yet again. Mm -hmm. Because even with the LGBTQ movement, you know, there's still racism within that movement that's not being dealt with. And we've talked about the racism in California in regards to Proposition 8 and how the white LGBTQ, you know, mainstream was trying to scapegoat the black community because they were afraid to go after the Mormon church, but they Mm -hmm. wanted to scapegoat black people. And we've gotten all the information to deal with it. But now that they have, you know, marriage equality, then they get to have some of the, you know, uh, perks and incentives, if you will. But they're still not dealing with issues of racism and what have you and sexism. There's even sexism in the LGBTQ community. And these are issues that definitely need to be addressed. But again, you know, um, I understand why we had a lot of people of color who did not necessarily ride the marriage equality train. And I understand a lot of different people's perspectives because, you know, some of this is still discrimination because why would a married couple have more incentives than a single person? Single people should be afforded the tax write-offs for, you know, mortgages and special things that are given, you know, to married couples, you know. And so, I mean, it's a lot of different reasons why we need to go back and look at some of these things. But Raina is correct. But I want you all to look up the law of provocation. Look that up and see how that worked. Um, It was talking about, you know, one case in North Carolina and how this law was served to cheapen the lives of black slaves who failed to be properly deferential to whites. And so 155 years later, you know, um, it was, you know, the same ruling around to mitigate his black client's actions. And just look it up. Look it up because, you know, these are things that's important. Um, And, you know, you have the mere words doctrine, which is, you know, just look it up. Look it up because, you know, there's so much information in this book that, you know, I know I won't be able to get to it all. And this is why I want you all to go and see what's happening and read about it because, you know, I think we're going to do part three and I'm done with this and we're going to move on 
to, you know, some other topics, but, you know, right here, you know, it's talking about an argument against, you know, re- certain reforms, you know, that black people can and do routinely show discipline and intelligence and productiveness, even in the face of nigger, and that the law should undergird such conduct by offering no excuse to those who react with violence. So basically what they're saying is if you have, you know, this one black who doesn't get angry, you know, when someone calls them a nigger, then in their mind, you know, there's no excuse for the ones that do react negatively and angrily when called nigger. And this is what we have to be careful about because you even have this to this day. You know, if someone, you know, offends you, and you address the issue, you'll have some people out here who would say, you should have just taken a high road and ignored it. How long are you supposed to take that high road? While you're being pelted with rocks. But anyway, you know, I want you to go and look that up, and basically it's just as important, because right here it's talking about Professor Ann Coughlin, and, you know, she had coined the term the perils of leniency. So I want you to go and look that up and, you know, just kind of get a better understanding as to, you know, what was happening. You know, Ralph Ellison, you know, talked about this. And, you know, he wrote the book The Invisible Man. Okay, and for those that aren't aware, you know, The Invisible Man was talking about people of color, black people in particular. So, you know, you know, he wrote this here, and I'll read it. Um, basically, he was talking about the American Negro tradition, and he said, which teaches one to deflect racial provocation and to master and contain pain. It is a tradition which abhors as obscene any trading on one's own anguish for gain or sympathy, which springs not from a desire to deny the harshness of existence but from a will to deal with it as men at their best have always done. So basically, we've been taught to take the high road and to deflect, you know, uh, you know these insults, these offenses. And because, because acting out and, and rebelling meant, you know, that we could be subject to death, you know. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's just important for you all to, you know, understand this and, you know, go and read some of this up for yourself, you know, because it's just, it's been a number, you know, it's talking about an incident here in Miami, Florida. It's talking about a case called Wiggs versus Corshawn and another one, Nims versus Harrison. And so for the Wiggs case, it involves some black customers <laughs> at, you know, huh? I'm just laughing, never mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so some black customers at a, at a hotel restaurant in Miami, Florida. And basically, um, they ended up getting into this big argument with the waitress over a food order. And so, you know, um, there were several adults, and you know, one seven-year-old boy, And basically, you know, the waitress, after, you know, they had argued, the waitress exclaimed to one of the adults, you can't talk to me like that, you black son of a bitch, I will kill you, end quote. 
And so basically, you know, later on, you know, outside of the presence of, you know, the complaining customers, but within earshot of them, the waitress was shouting, they are nothing but a bunch of niggers. Wow. You know, so they they checked out of the hotel because they were guests at the hotel. They checked out of the hotel, and the next day they, you know, went back to the hotel to talk to the manager about what happened. And basically the manager told them, well, you shouldn't feel so bad. That waitress is prejudiced against Catholics, Jews, and all kinds of minorities. Right. Now, how and about- that's how people that's how people do. They'll be like, yeah, well, you know, they're equal opportunity racist, or they make fun of they're an equal opportunity offender, as though that somehow makes the shit better. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, I'm it's like, wow, you're an equal opportunity bigot. How big of you? You know, <laughs> right? You know, it's quite magnanimous, right? Oh, but it's it's just interesting, but, you know, don't feel so bad. She hates you as much as she hates these other folks. Ain't that some shit? You know, and so basically, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the people that were offended, the black family there, you know, they cut their vacation short and they went home and then they sued them, you know, and they ended up going through trial and they won a jury verdict. And so... You know, it's it's just interesting. And in the other cases, I brought up the second one, the Harrison case. You know, basically, it was a um, high school teacher, a black woman by the name of Rosalind Mims, and she sued a bunch of the graduating students because they made comments about her and threats towards her that they published in a newsletter that was distributed at the school. You know, the senior newsletter, I think every school did that. I know we did at our school. But, in, you know, in this newsletter, it described her as the most fucked up teacher. And it called her a stupid bitch who has black skin and is a fucking jigaboo. And then they declared they would, it would have said, I will kill you, you fucking whore. And another one says, I will rape you and all of your children and cousins, you stupid motherfucking bitch. Wow. And, and somebody, you know, added, died, nigger. To it, and so basically, um, it's just you know she sued them, and <laughs> you know you all got to go read up on that because I was just floored. I was just floored, you know, reading this. So there's a lot of examples out there, a lot of information, you know, that you know I just think it's important that we have because, unfortunately, I believe in a lot of situations like this, when you see some people out there protesting and upset, you know, they're offended. But, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people out here that do not know how to articulate, you know, their pain. They just know that it's wrong. And I use me as an example because when I was younger and situations like this would occur, you know, I wasn't able to express myself. I didn't know how to express what I was feeling. I just knew that I felt bad and what I was experiencing was wrong. And, you know, fortunately I had people around me who could and would, you know, um, you know, deal with the situation and, and, and articulate it for me. 
And that's one of the reasons why I think this show is important, and I believe our work is important, because we get a chance to be the voice of people who are voiceless. And in addition to that, what we're seeing happening across the country, you know, you have people that, you know, are basically looking at this and making all of these negative comments. But, again, you know, I posted on my wall a picture, and it was talking about how, you know, it said most blacks, you know, basically are not looking to, you know, deconstruct or dismantle white supremacy. What they're trying to do is get a better position in it, you know, and, you know, that's just not black people. You know, that's across the board. And like I say, you're seeing a lot of that even in this community. Like I tell you guys, in the past six months, really the past year, I have been absolutely floored by, you know, just what has come out and what I've been seeing and, you know, people jockeying for a position or a better position because, you know, there's, you know, celebrity or, you know, popularity and money. And I'm just fucking outdone with the whole thing. And so, anyway, we'll move on from that. So, you know, we have about 16 minutes left. And basically, I want to talk about the conference. So, our social justice summits, we will be having our conference this year, October 17th and 18th. Again, that is October 17th and 18th in Washington, D.C. It will be held at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library, which is in Chinatown there in D.C., the Metro is right there. You know, uh, you have different restaurants. So when we break for lunch, you'll be able to, you know, take your time and go. We're going to have some exciting panels, you know, and some very, some great people from the region, you know, on these panels. We'll be talking about another a number of issues. We'll be talking about racism. Um, you know, we're going to have um, a documentary showing. And it's just it's going to be... You know, it's going to be a fun time. So that's going to be that Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, basically, you know, we're looking for you all to come out. It's absolutely free. Free. You know, we are taking donations, you know, and, you know, for administrative costs because, you know, we're going to have to bring a couple of people in that we want to be a part of this conference. And so if you're able to, you know, donate something to us, we would appreciate it. You know, we have two different email accounts that you can send the donations to. So, POCBeyondFaith at gmail.com. Again, POCBeyondFaith at gmail.com. That goes to our PayPal. And you can also give to giftings at, well, no, gifting, you know, with the G, no S. So, gifting at peopleofcolorbeyondfaith.org. Again, gifting at peopleofcolorbeyondfaith.org. The website will be online in the next two, three days, and you'll be able to, you know, donate directly from the site. So, you know, we are taking, you know, contributions. We'll also have the registration form on the website. We're asking people to register in advance 
for those that have children, you know, again, we'll be in a library, but we want to make uh, accommodations, have accommodations available. So we have a few breakout rooms that will be available to us, and we can, you know, have the children in the one room, and we'll have, of course, adult supervision there. And, you know, it's a library, so maybe we'll be able to allow that supervisor to take them over to the children's section, pick out a couple of books so they can read to each other or what have you. But we'll have games and different things, different activities for them to enjoy during the conference. But it's going to be a great time. You know, this is basically, you know, um, a follow-up to the Moving Social Justice Conference last year. And for those that came to that conference, you know, I mean, I just felt empowered and enlightened. I felt kinship. You know, it was just, it was a beautiful thing. You know, Raina, you know, how did you feel about the conference last year? It was a great conference. I mean, we learned a lot. We met a lot of nice people, great people, doing a lot of great things. Um, it was a great time. I mean, that's, lot, that's all I really can say about it. It was great. Right, right. So we're really excited about this year, and we want you to come out because it just felt like a big family reunion. And so, you know, we're still putting some things in place, but we wanted to let you know the venue is locked. So it will be at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in Washington, D.C. We will be in the main hall. So, you know, that's, you know, that's not the grand hall, but it's the main hall. So, yeah, definitely, we want to see you there. Like I said, all you have to do is get there. And we are going to have a good time. It's going to be a full day on that Saturday. We're going to have four panels that Saturday. And then on that Sunday, you know, uh, we'll be watching a documentary and another panel. And so we're just looking forward for those of you that are interested in, you know, possibly volunteering and assisting Again, you can even send me an email at the pocbeyondfaith at gmail.com or you can send it to blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. It doesn't matter. I'll get them either way. But, you know, we're really excited about this and we're going to have some wonderful people there. You know, it's just going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. If you thought last year was heartwarming and, you know, empowering and, you know, informative, just wait until this year. You know, we have a lot of wonderful people that we're working with and that will be on the panels and speaking. So it's just destined to be, you know, um, even better than it was last year. So we're excited, and we want you all to come out. And, like you know, like we said, it's open to the public. So it's not just, you know, a select group of people that we're inviting to come in. It's open to the public. So come on over, have a good time, and this conference is not just for people of color. You know, you know, you have some people out here who basically believed that it was only for people of color. No, no, we invite everybody. We had plenty of, you know, um, white people come to the conference last year. So, no, just come out. Just come out. Just come out. You know, we are seeking donations, like I said, for administrative and overhead costs. But, you know, the conference itself is free. And so we're looking forward to seeing you. We're looking forward to meeting you, all of that. And so once we get the registration, get the website up and the registration form, you know, we definitely want that so that, you know, we can kind of have an idea as to who to expect. 
but it's going to be a really good time. You don't want to miss it. For those that missed it last year, don't worry. We're going to make up for it plus some this year. So, you know, I'm excited about it. And, you know, um, in addition to that, in June of 2016, in June of 2016, at first I was saying April, May, but we pushed it back to June. But in June of 2016, we will be having our first regional meeting. And the regional meeting will be moving every year. But the national conference, basically, that will be that will remain in D.C. It will remain in the DMV area. But the regional one in June of 2016 will be in Philadelphia. So we're looking forward to that. And Black Atheists of Philadelphia is our host group. And so we're excited about working with them and bringing you know, our regional meeting meeting to Philadelphia. And after Philadelphia, you know, we're still working on where we want to go next. You know, it could be St. Louis, it could be Chicago, it could be Atlanta. So, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, how we want to, you know, move that meeting around. But definitely June of 2016, we'll be in Philadelphia, and we'll have more details for you on that in upcoming weeks. So, like I tell you guys all the time, start saving your United Negro Conference funds, you know, because it's going to happen. It is happening. So we're looking forward to seeing you. We're looking forward to, you know, talking with you and engaging with you. And, you know, you're going to probably get love bombed again this year like you were last year. But come on, we want to see you. We want to see you. And, again, you'll have a variety of people out there. You know, we're going to have, you know, uh, secularists out there, of course, you know, humanists. Um, And when I say humanists, I'm talking about not only secular humanists, but, you know, you have humanists that are believers. So, you know, they will be there as well. And I know we're going to have some believers out there, you know, uh, on the panel. So we're just trying to kind of get a balanced panel out so that we can have a really good dialogue and and be able to learn with one another. And it's about communication. And so what makes our conference different from many other conferences is that our conference, like I said, our focal point, our pivot point, the center of what we're doing is social justice. And that's it and that's all. And you have other conferences, whereas their focal point is non-belief, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just that we decided we're going in a different direction. And so, you know, our focus is social justice, and under that social justice umbrella, you have so many other different categories. You know, um, we have feminism, you know, you have LGBTQ issues, you have, you know, issues with racial parity, racial bias, you know, because we want racial parity. And so, you know, we'll be talking about a number of different issues, you know, economic justice, you know, environmental justice. And what's interesting about, you know, what's happening in Baltimore, and, you know, Raina spoke on this a little bit Tuesday. She was talking about, you know, the lead paint and how, you know, many people, you know, who are living in what is deemed as the ghetto, but I don't like that term, but, you know, I want you all to go and actually look up what ghetto means. And originally, the original definition behind that, but, you know, they were painting a lot of those houses and apartments with lead paint. 
and that lead paint would chip, and little kids would eat that paint because, you know, I guess it has a sweet taste to it. Is that right, Raina? Yes, it does. They actually used to add it to wine in ancient Rome. So, yeah, so, you know, you have those issues. So they would drink out, or rather, they would drink out of leaden cups. Sorry about that. Because lead has a kind of a sweeter, a sweeter taste, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it's more to what, you know, meets the eye. But, like I said, we're excited about the conference. We want you to be there. I'm excited about meeting you. You know, here we go, part two, right? And so we'll be putting out more information about that. We're going to start the webcast. Is that all you were going to say about lead, though? Oh, well, that's why why I gave you the floor, because I was just going to, you know, basically... I was basically going to say we're start we're going to start up the webcast and you know maybe we'll be able to put together a panel to talk about the lead poisoning. But please go ahead, Rayna. No, no, no. I was just I was just asking. I, I was I I didn't understand the tie-in. Now now I see the tie-in. It was to talk about t- possible topics on the webcast. That's yeah okay. That <laughs> <laughs> so was like I was like okay. <laughs> Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I'll Yeah, that that'd be a good that'd be a good one. I mean, you know, I mean, like most cities, like a lot of uh lead paint has been, you know, removed. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot that hasn't. You know? Right. So, um we just we can we can talk about it. That'd be good. Excellent. So, yeah, definitely. You know, we'll be addressing that. I'm going to post an article talking about um Baltimore and the lead paint issue. So I'll post that today. But, you know, it's just important that you all understand, you know, what's happening here. But, yeah, we're going to be doing interviews um, on the People of Color Beyond Faith um, blog talk. So that's coming up. The blog will be coming up soon. So, you know, we're excited, and we are going to have a good time. You know, we want to keep you encouraged. You keep us encouraged. And, you know, we'll all be able to take, you know, an additional step toward progress. And that's what we're trying to do here. But, you know, one of the things, one of the caveats about what we're seeing across the country, you know, with the different protests, I posted an article yesterday about how in some cases you will have law enforcement disguising themselves as protesters and attempting to encourage the rioting and the looting, so on and so forth. So you need to pay attention to what's happening out there. But additionally, we want you to pay attention to the propaganda that's out there because, you know, this, this you know, uprising in Baltimore, it happened because they entrapped those students. They provoked those students. You had people that were, you know, the part of the baseball game crowd there, you know, some of the sports fans, you know, they were yelling at some of the protesters, throwing rocks at them, and that is how a lot of that got started. And also, as Raina said, too, they, you know, some of these children were getting out of school. They shut down public transportation, let the kids out of school, and when they walked outside, surrounded by police officers. Right. You know, so, you know, we want you all to know about, you know, what's happening because, you know, unfortunately, we've been stereotyped so much 
that, you know, regardless of what we did or what we do and how we categorize it, you know, there are some people out there who will just say that we're wrong, period, and everything that we do is wrong. And it's, it's unfortunate to the, you know, the young people out there, you know, keep your heads up, you know, and go with the courage of your convictions. And for some of the older people out here, you know, I understand, especially those that are holding on to so-called covenant leadership positions. And this is not your parents' or your grandparents' civil rights movement. It's not. These children are not going to be out there singing, we shall overcome, and locking arms and marching up and down the street. You know, being peaceful, being, you know, you know, subservient, that has never gotten us anything. Never has. What did you say, Raina? You can't good behavior your way You can't you can't behave your way out of racism. Mm-hmm. You know, so we just want you all to pay attention to what's happening. Do not allow people to discourage you and you know, you're gonna have a lot of naysayers out there. And it is it's just it is what it is. So, again, you know, we want you all to pay attention, pay attention to what's happening around you. When you read these articles, always throw in a grain of salt. And for those of you that can, you know, donate to the legal jail bond, jail, Lord, the legal fund, the jail bond fund that they have set up to help these people. Now, I did pretty good today, Raina. I I didn't really speak in tongues much, but here we go at the end, and now I want to start tripping over my tongue. So anyway, people, mm-hmm. I think we're going to... You know, when we... I hadn't done the show in about five, six weeks, so it takes a minute to kind of get back to the groove. So I got to remind myself to make the announcement about the conference at the beginning of the show again. So... Those of you out there, thanks for bearing with us. You know, we're trying to get everything back on track, but we appreciate you and we love you. And you all have a great weekend. All right, Raina, you take care. All right, bye bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.